Mark Stein Show. Now, here's Andrew Lawton, in for Mark. Hello and welcome along. Another week in guest host excellence here on The Mark Stein Show. It is Wednesday, June 30th, 2021, the penultimate day before Canada Day, although that pretty much has been cancelled, as we'll talk about later on in the show, so you needn't worry about that holiday anymore. It's another day I actually wanted to draw attention to. Just a few days ago, June 25th, George Orwell's birthday. Not a milestone birthday. He was born in 1903, which would have made him about, oh, I don't know, 118 or so. And we'll just edit it out if I got the math wrong. It is clear that the world about which he warned us, or tried to warn us anyway, has become more and more real as time has gone on. I've always been struck by one of these more famous quotes of his, the past was erased, the erasure was forgotten, the lie became the truth. The erasure of words is not something you think of happening in a free society beyond cancel culture and all of that, eliminating words from the official record. But that's precisely what happened in Pennsylvania at the Pensbury School District board meetings. Like so many school districts across America, across North America, in fact, the, the Pensbury School District has been having some very tense consultations on critical race theory. Some parents not a fan of the everyone is evil, everyone's racist, every institution has to go rhetoric that's being injected into school curriculums while you're sleeping. And a few concerned parents noted that their objections that they raised at school board meetings in March and May were actually edited out of the official record, the video recordings of these meetings that were posted after the fact. And it was made apparent in a letter that the school board president, Christine Toy Dragoni, sent out that any comments that contain, quote, microaggressions as well as explicitly racist ideas that connect the black community to commonly held stereotypical beliefs are harmful and not in the best interests of our entire community. She was taking aim at some of the comments that parents may have raised in their criticism of critical race theory. And she says, yes, freedom of speech and varying viewpoints are acceptable. However, ah, uh, yes, anytime someone qualifies their support for free speech with a however, you have to pay close attention. Recent comments escalated from expressing a viewpoint to expressing beliefs and ideas that were abusive and coded in racist terms, also known as dog whistles. Now, given these remarks have been purged from the public record, I don't know what they are. No one can actually decide for themselves what that language actually said, because the school board has decided it is wrong speak, it is wrong think, and should be erased from the record. This was not sitting well with one parent in particular, a man by the name of Simon Campbell, who has a greater reverence for the United States Constitution, despite being an immigrant from Great Britain, than so many of the people who are lifelong Americans sitting on this school board. Here's Simon Campbell's rant, which is just a, a small section of it, I should say. The whole thing was about five minutes long. Laura Rosen-Cohen linked to it yesterday in Laura's Links. He was on fire. It seems to me that you think you can supersede the United States Constitution. 
Well, I've got news for you, school board president Benito Mussolini. Your power does not supersede that of the US Constitution and the First Amendment rights of the citizens of this great nation. Let's be very, very clear who has the power. Mr. It is Campbell, not government policy. Do not warn me or do not interrupt my time. That if you personal insults like that again, or if you personally direct your comments, you will Let be asked be very to clear. step away from I'm, the podium. I'm going to I am quote to you, you again, make your comments, I'm but do not just do name do not calling talk like over you me. just did. This is my comment, not your comment. I'm quoting to you now from the United States Supreme Court 1964 case, New York Times versus Sullivan. This is constitutional case law in this country, and I'm quoting you from the U.S. Supreme Court. The, just, the judges wrote that this nation is founded on the, quote, profound national commitment to the principle that debate on public issues shall be uninhibited, robust, and wide open, and that it may well include vehement, caustic, and sometimes unpleasantly sharp attacks on government and public officials. That's constitutional case law in this nation. I don't have to be nice to you. Nobody behind me has to be nice to you. If you don't like living in the United States of America, then you can all move to Russia, Cuba, or China. This is the First Amendment. Bravo, Mr. Campbell. I should just end the segment there. I have nothing more to add to that. For starters, the idea that you have school board council presidents and trustees that are all high and mighty believing they are deserving of reverence and respect when they are trying to eradicate the very idea of education from educational systems is ridiculous. Also, these you know little podunk small town county administrators, bureaucrats, solicitors who have no knowledge of the law that they are in part responsible for upholding Good on Mr. Campbell for stepping up and so firmly and fervently saying what, as you could hear from the applause, pretty much every parent in attendance was thinking. And you better believe they wouldn't dare purge Mr. Campbell's words from the official record. As he says quite clearly in them, he says, don't you dare or you are getting sued. And I know there is a lot of dispute. I see it in the Stein Online comment section from time to time about the utility of waving around your constitution. And there's a time and a place for it. You don't want to whip it out just for anyone. But the whole point of it, which I think is sound, is that there are people who do not believe in the values in that. Sure, I don't think quoting Times v. Sullivan is necessarily winning over the hearts and minds of the Pensbury School District, but it certainly is revealing the hypocrisy that they claim they have a legal right to edit the consultations from the public, which is by design there to edit out dissent. They are trying to eliminate and eradicate any dissent. And this is not the first time this has happened. We were talking on the previous show about the new hate speech law that has been introduced in Canada. And interestingly enough, back in 2019 it was when they were holding hearings on that at the House of Commons, hearings at which Mark Stein testified. And there was something that happened on the day Mark testified, which was that one of the conservative representatives on this committee, who had been fired from the committee basically by his own party leader for the crime of wrong speak, his words 
were officially removed from the transcript. The audio file was retroactively edited. The Hansard, which is the uh, official written transcript of the debates taking place in the Parliament of Canada, was officially edited out as though he had never said it, and his crime was speaking out to basically challenge a false assertion made by a witness. And again, no one can decide for themselves whether he was right or wrong because the official record has been scrapped. All that remains is the maligned version of it. And that's the same thing happening in the Pensbury School District. The only record of these racist, coded, dog whistle, offensive, bigoted, whatever they are comments, the only record that exists of them, in any official forum anyway, is the maligned definition of them as given by the censors. That, oh, well, that was just a little bit of a bridge too far. All the dissent is somehow not allowed to be leveled towards them. And thank goodness for the parent who pointed that out. I mentioned the Canadian hate speech law. I know I gave you your fair share of Canadian content when I guest hosted last week, but I, I must point out on this, it was something that when I talked about it Wednesday and the show came out just a few hours later, the official bill was tabled, Bill C-36, reintroducing Section 13, and we are already almost halfway to a full bingo on Canadian political trivia with these numbers. But this section, Mark wrote about it on Monday, is a section that a lot of conservatives and one liberal, that was it, one liberal, I believe, voted against just nine years ago. And now it's coming back, a section that allows the federal government to prosecute hate speech based on a definition that falls very short of the criminal code definition of hate speech in Canada, a definition that will extend to unpopular speech, unkind speech, speech that you may revile, but as part of living in a society that supposedly protects free speech. And what's interesting about this restoration, this revival of Section 13 in Canadian law is that it comes with another companion power that even the original Section 13 didn't have. And this actually allows for the prosecution of a crime that has not taken place and might never take place. If you believe someone may commit what they call a bias offense or a hate-motivated offense, if you believe someone might commit one of these, you can go to a judge and say, Your Honor, I believe... Person X might be committing a crime. You lay out a little bit of evidence and without charging, without convicting, that judge can order a peace bond, they call it, which means that person could have legally owned firearms taken away. They could have their right to imbibe an alcohol taken away. They could be subjected to an ankle monitoring bracelet. They could be forced to partake in random drug and alcohol tests, basically surrendering their liberty and abiding by any number of conditions the court sees fit, which could be to refrain from logging on the internet, all to prevent a crime that they may or may not ever have committed. Now, peace bonds are already problematic enough, as they say, for people that care about civil liberties because they are restrictions on your liberty that are deployed in the absence of any conviction, in the absence, in, in many cases, of proof beyond a reasonable doubt, as is the threshold for a criminal conviction. And now to apply one of these, to give the court a mechanism to take away your freedom for something you may never do that you may just be thinking of doing or not even that is prosecuting you for thought crimes. And this is in Canada. 
And again, for those of us who were around 9, 10, 12, 15 years ago, when a lot of these battles in the Human Rights Commissions were taking place, this wouldn't surprise us because we've known our country was capable of this. But that this is coming back now and that Canadians, by and large, are prepared to go along with it. As I said, I introduced this topic on this very show one week ago. A few hours later, the bill was officially tabled. It has been seven days, seven days since this hate speech, hate crime bill was tabled in Canada's parliament. And the leader of the Canadian Conservative Party, Aaron O'Toole, has said nothing about it. Not a word. Aaron O'Toole, elected as leader of the Conservative Party of Canada one year ago, could be an election any moment in Canada, as is the nature of the Westminster parliamentary system. He has not opened his mouth once, not a tweet, not a Facebook post, absolutely nothing about this bill. And as I believe I said last week, this has to be the hill to die on. In politics in general, certainly in Canadian politics, there are any number of untouchable issues. Oh, well, you know, we can't talk about abortion. We, we can't talk about this. And, and at a certain point, all you're left with are lower taxes. And even then, you can't really talk about it as clearly as you'd like. But that's the thing. In, in Canadian politics, any conservative has been so used to all of these issues being taken off the table and, and oh, well, we can't do this and we can't talk about this. And, and at a certain point, the rock-ribbed, hardcore conservative Stephen Harper, when he was prime minister, he ran on a platform by and large of, well, let's give tax credits for your kids who want to partake in winter sports. That's how we're going to advance the conservative cause. So when free speech is not an issue that the Conservative Party of Canada is prepared to take up, who is? Who is? And again, as Mark said in his column on Monday, the principled small-l liberal journalists that were around nine years ago are nowhere to be found now. I've talked to people in the last week, and I've said, oh yeah, Bill C-36, and they wait, Bill what? This is a, a bill that could put you in jail if you don't comply with the court's restrictions because of a crime you might do in the future. And no one has any idea that it's happening because there is no opposition to this. This is Mark Stein inviting you to Stein's Song of the Week on 7-8 Radio. This week we have an allegory for the fall of the Habsburg Empire. If that all sounds a bit sober and serious, well, somehow the village people get mixed up in the whole business too. Did I mention that it all starts with the French culinary term for the shoulder of a rabbit? Don't worry, you'd be surprised how well Tony Bennett, Bing Crosby and more can make a rabbit shoulder sing. Stein Song of the Week, Sunday afternoon at 5.30. There are several dead and dozens still unaccounted for after the awful collapse of a condominium in Surfside, Florida. But as that old line from Rahm Emanuel says, never let a crisis go to waste. A Washington Post reporter, Hannah Dreyer, decided to blame Ron DeSantis for not responding swiftly enough. As she said on Twitter, there's a saying in emergency management, the first 24 hours are the only 24 hours. FEMA was ready to deploy to the condo collapse almost immediately and included the crisis in its daily briefing, but didn't get permission from Governor DeSantis to get on the ground for a full day. What she's saying there is that if you can't do anything in the first 24 hours, don't even bother, and Ron DeSantis wouldn't let FEMA on the ground. 
This set the narrative. This was the DC message that was circulating among the national media that Ron DeSantis was stonewalling federal intervention and federal support for Florida. Well, it's kind of inconvenient when you listen to these words from the mayor of Miami-Dade County. Uh, Are you getting all the federal and state support you need? We are very grateful. Not only the state of Florida has been here in force, but the president on the morning of the disaster called to offer all possible assistance. And by the end of that day, we had FEMA approval. So we're working super hard to uh, uh, get uh, everything we need. And we've not lacked for any support as well as support from around the world. That's a Democrat mayor, by the way, who says they've never lacked for anything from the federal government or from the state government. So if we can't blame Ron DeSantis for this tragedy, what can we blame? What about that report from an engineer a few years ago, the Structural Field Survey Report of 2018 that said there were some issues about structural damage that needed to be addressed? Should we perhaps pursue that line of questioning? What's that? I'm told CNN has actually come up with something that is even more directly to blame. In terms of in terms of climate, you brought up what's happening, what we're seeing in the Pacific Northwest. Um, We've been talking a lot about what happened in Florida at the Surfside condominium building that collapsed. We don't know exactly what happened at this point. But given what we know about the changing climate, given that we've seen an increase in these so-called extraordinary tides and the impact that that can have in areas like South Florida, do you think that climate could have played a role in that building's collapse? Well, obviously, we don't know fully, but we do know that that the seas are rising. I mean, we know that we're losing inches and inches of beaches, not just in Florida, but all around. Um, You know, Lake Michigan, where I'm from, they, you know, we've seen the loss of beaches because the the waters are rising. So, you know, this is a phenomenon that will continue, whether it will have to wait to see what the analysis is for this building. But the issue about resiliency and making sure we adapt to this changing climate, that's going to mean levees need to be built. That means seawalls need to be built. That means infrastructure needs to be built. We need to make sure that we invest enough in clearing out the forests so we don't have these weather events. We need to invest in hardening our transmission lines, maybe burying wires so that we can protect areas that are like tinderbox dry. There's so much investment that we need to do to protect ourselves from climate change, but also to address it and mitigate it. And hopefully these infrastructure bills, when taken together, will make a huge step and allow America to lead again. Secretary Granholm, good to have you with us this morning. Thanks so much. Thank you. I see. That was a question from a CNN reporter and a rather unflinching answer from the Energy Secretary, Jennifer Granholm, the former governor of Michigan. And I remarked on this to a few friends. It used to be that blaming a building collapse on climate change would make you a punchline. But in Joe Biden's America, it makes you the Energy Secretary. And it's kind of a good trend, actually. I was amazed that systemic racism wasn't to blame. Perhaps by the time we do the next show, uh, systemic racism will have supplanted climate change as being the real cause of this. It is interesting. Once you decide to make that the be-all and end-all, once you decide to open up the doors and say climate change, the climate emergency, global warming, it is the, the opposite of the tide that raises all boats. It's the flood that sinks all boats, I guess. That is the way that you view the world. And even a building collapse in Surfside, Florida might, according to Governor Granholm, be about climate change. Who would have thought?
And now, from the land where everything is policed except crime. Good evening, all. It's your Brit Wanker Copper of the Day. It's not exactly a Brit wanker copper, but I'm going to again invoke guest host prerogative and spotlight a Brit wanker security guard. Such is the case in the report from the Manchester terror attack at the Ariana Grande concert in 2017. The first volume of the report from the Independent Inquiry was released this past week, and it finds that political correctness may well have resulted in the 22 lives being lost by the Islamic terrorist Salman Abedi bombing Manchester Arena. The report finds that a number of people were somewhat concerned with this guy milling about for quite a significant period of time with a bulging rucksack, but were afraid of being accused of racism or Islamophobia were they to have confronted him. In particular, one security guard whose comments are featured quite prominently in the report, he said that, well, he saw the guy and he noticed he was there and his age didn't quite fit in. He was too young to be a parent of one of Ariana Grande's fans and and he was too old to have been a a fan himself. Not that, you know, Middle Eastern terrorists are not allowed to enjoy a a good Ariana Grande concert every now and then. Who's judging? Not me. He was also looking a bit agitated, again, there for an hour and a half with a bulging rucksack. And the security guard, as quoted in the report, says he was fearful of being branded a racist. He hesitated to report Salman Abedi because of his concern about what the reaction might be, worried that he might be accused of racism. Now, in some respect, I understand it. This is in Manchester, one of many communities in the United Kingdom where the police decided to completely turn a blind eye to mass grooming gangs led by people of color for the same fear, an unwillingness or an inability to actually enforce the law because of political correctness, because they don't like the cultural narrative that enforcing the law will feed into. The facts are a little bit too inconvenient for a lot of them. But we were supposed to have moved past all that. And when you see a guy looking a little bit nervous and agitated, Middle Eastern descent, carrying a bulging bag, certainly you are entitled to ask a question, aren't you? And there were other people as well, including one gentleman who was there to pick up his stepdaughter from the concert. He saw the man, and he brought his concerns to security, and they did absolutely nothing about it. And that was 16 minutes before the bomb exploded. 16 minutes. No security intervened. The man who was given the brush off by security questioned the guy and himself got a nervous reaction from him. But no one was prepared to say a thing. And much of the witness testimony says that fear of being branded a racist was a very key part of that. And how on earth are you supposed to, as a society, save yourself if you get mired in these things? Again, I mean, we were talking earlier in the show about thought crimes. People are convicting themselves of preemptive thought crimes, as we see in the Manchester Arena case, they we went from see something, say something being the you know hallmark, the motto 
of the post 9-11 world. And now it's don't see anything. But if you do see something for the love of all that is holy, don't you dare say something. And if you do, you are a big stinking racist. It's a little bit long, not as catchy, but I think that's going to be on the posters on the London Underground any day now. I believe the Darwinian rule is that certain societies simply do not deserve to survive for all that much longer. I fear we are among them. But enough of this. Let's go over to Mark Stein for some breaking news. Keep up to date with the past on the 100 Years Ago Show with Mark Stein. A bloodbath in Kentucky, a gusher in California, and a president on the Supreme Court. It's June 1921. A hundred years from today. news update the messy aftermath of the great war continues the crisis in upper silesia between germany and poland has purportedly been resolved by an agreement signed by british general henneke major and italian general demarinis on behalf of the allies defending poland and by general hoffer on behalf of Germany. Both sides have committed themselves to withdrawing their armed forces from the other's territory. Following demands from the Allied Council, the German government has disbanded the paramilitary group Einwohnerwehr, the defense of the citizens. The Bulgar revolutionary Georgi Petrov has been assassinated by operatives of the Internal Macedonian Revolutionary Organization, a group Mr. Petrov once headed back when it was known as the Bulgarian-Macedonian Andrianople Revolutionary Committees. Just south of Macedonia and Bulgaria, Greek forces have evacuated the city of Izmit on the Sea of Marmara, which British troops handed over to them just last year. Izmit is now free for the taking by Turkish nationalists. On St Vitus Day, June the 28th, the Constitutional Assembly of the Kingdom of Serbs, Croats and Slovenes uh, approved the new nation's first constitution. It is already being called the Vidovdan, Feast of St. Vitus constitution, but it establishes the country as a parliamentary monarchy with a national language of Serbo-Croat Slovene. This is not a song in that language. It all snow there, still men go there, find the pole and then for some reason every season they go back again yet these same explorers often lose their way while they are tramping maybe the vamping leads them astray he sighs and whispers oogie oogie wah wah oogie oogie wah wah she sighs and answers oogie oogie wah wah now don't that sound absurd Just a crazy word I Don't mean much to you, I know But it means an awful lot to an Eskimo And oh boy, they love that oogie-oogie-wah-wah Oogie-oogie-wah-wah That makes a person curious to know But you'll get fooled just the way I want the word don't mean what you think it does. Oogie oogie wah wah means I want a mama to an Eskimo. Oogie oogie. 
Chihuahua means I want a mama to an Eskimo. If you say so, the words do not seem to occur in the latest numbered treaty with Canadian Eskimos, Treaty 11, between King George V and various Eskimo and Indian tribes in Canada's Northwest Territories. His Majesty did not personally attend the initial signing at Fort Providence, just west of the Great Slave Lake, about 3,000 miles from Ottawa, but left it instead to Treaty Commissioner Henry Conroy. Somewhat closer to home for the British monarch, following his opening of the Parliament of Northern Ireland earlier this month, the King chose to leave it to his Lord Lieutenant Viscount Fitzalan to open the new Parliament of Southern Ireland at the Royal College of Science in Dublin. The appointed Senate were all present, but only the four Unionist MPs representing the University of Dublin attended the House of Commons. Having elected Gerald Fitzgibbon to be Speaker, the House adjourned sine die because it lacked a quorum. Republican Sinn Féiners are meeting elsewhere, and the prospects of Southern Ireland's new Parliament are not reckoned to be good. Nevertheless, the government has released multiple Republicans from Mountjoy Prison, including the founder of Sinn Féin, Arthur Griffith. In addition, Prime Minister Lloyd George has invited both Sir James Craig, loyalist Prime Minister of Northern Ireland, and Eamon de Valera, leader of the Republican side, to London for peace talks. Mr de Valera has accepted with conditions. It is not yet known what Sir James's response will be. The British Parliament's Air Navigation and Transport Act has come into effect regulating all air travel within the British Empire, you may find it safer than alternative modes of transport. 31 passengers are dead on the Australian steamship Fitzroy. After leaving Cuffs Harbour for Sydney, the Fitzroy foundered during a terrible game of the New South Wales coast. I can see my mammy, Uncle Sammy, and Jemima Lee. When my sister Mabel left the table, she fixed the place for me. I'll be in Kentucky if I'm lucky with my family. I got the blues for old Kentucky. Oh boy, I feel blue. I long to kiss my family. I miss my daddy too. Kentucky has got the blues for what happened in just one home near Mayfield. A 35-year-old farmer, Ernest Lawrence, killed 10 members of his own family, four adults, six children. He then set fire to the house and shot himself. The bodies are so completely burned that they will all fit in a single coffin. Also in America, William Howard Taft, the 27th President of the United States, is now the 10th Chief Justice of the United States and the only man in the history of the Republic to hold both offices. Mr. Taft was nominated by President Harding and confirmed that same day by the Senate, 61 to 4.
What's really bringing me back to California and you is that black gold. Oil has been discovered just south of Los Angeles at Signal Hill. O.P. Happy Yowls hit the oil at about 3,000 feet down and the blowout collapsed his drilling rig and sent the oil spurting 114 feet into the air. American Telephone and Telegraph, General Electric, the Radio Corporation of America and Westinghouse Electric Company have agreed to combine their researches into radio broadcasting rather than create rival systems. You look sweet upon the seat, but would you mind getting off and giving a chap a sporting chance at winning the Tour de France? The 15th Tour has just begun in Paris. The Belgians are expected to dominate, but one never knows. For the first time, a cyclist from Monaco is among the participants. Also in sports news, Jock Hutchison was born in Scotland. A stone's throw or a decent chip from the links at St Andrews, the oldest golf course in the world and the home of the Open Golf Championship. Mr Hutchison has played golf all his life in Scotland, but eventually moved to the United States. Last year, he won the Professional Golfers Association Championship in America. This year, he won at St. Andrews, but he did so as an American, having taken U.S. citizenship in 1920. Making the same journey in reverse, Lady Randolph Churchill was born Jenny Jerome in Brooklyn. Then, one day, the Prince of Wales introduced her to the third son of the Duke of Marlborough. Lord Randolph and Miss Jerome married, although the bride is said to have taken many lovers, including the King of Serbia and Otto von Bismarck's son. After her husband's death, Lady Randolph remarried and re-remarried. Her last marriage, just three years ago, was to a colonial service officer from West Africa, Montague Fippen Porch, who became stepfather to her son, the present colonial secretary, Winston Churchill, even though Mr. Fippen Porch is three years younger than Mr. Churchill. Last month... Uh, while her husband was away in Africa, Lady Randolph, as she preferred to be styled, notwithstanding her subsequent marriages, slipped while descending a staircase in new high-heeled shoes. She broke her ankle, gangrene set in, her left leg was amputated, and as a result, an artery hemorrhaged in her thigh. Lady Randolph Churchill is dead at the age of 67. And that's the way of the world, June 1921. A hundred years from today. A hundred years from today. There are a number of ways that a foreign adversary can seek to influence a person. Do you agree with that? Yes. Financial? Yes, that can be one. Uh, romance, you said, is another. Yes. It's Eric Swalwell's Chinese Penetration of the Day. Hi, 
I was about to give you just now another Canadian content alert. It's like a trigger warning, but it smells a little bit like maple. The thing is, this isn't even Canadian content anymore. This is like complete 100% bona fide Chicom content through and through. Nothing Canadian about this, even if it came from the floor of the Canadian Senate. And in some ways, it's actually a bit of a sequel to the Chinese penetration nominee from last week's show, Canadian Senator Yuen Pao Wu, who last week I honored for writing a Globe and Mail op-ed criticizing anyone who dares to condemn Chinese government policy as racist. That was his belief, that anti-Asian racism is really what's underscoring anyone who criticizes the Chinese Politburo. Well, this week, Senator Wu gave an impassioned speech in the Canadian Senate opposing a motion to condemn China's treatment of Uyghur Muslims. This is something that, of course, the Chinese regime vehemently denies doing. Canada has, through its parliament, accused China of committing a genocide against the Uyghurs. China has said, mind your own business. And last week, China's foreign minister says, well, Canada, you're in no position to talk because of your treatment of indigenous people. Well, this week, Senator Wu said the exact same thing, almost verbatim at points using Chinese Politburo rhetoric to say to Canada, the country in which he serves as a senator, that they should watch their criticism of China because of their own country's track record with Indigenous people, as though Canada's human rights record and that of the Chinese regime are comparable, that they're even in the same ballpark at all. And the speech got weirder and weirder. Until this point when it took on a combination of undergraduate political science presentation and Chinese propaganda. There are two kinds of state legitimacy. There's input legitimacy and there's output legitimacy. In the West, we tend to place much more emphasis on input legitimacy, which is essentially about how we select our representatives. Hence our focus, rightly so, on free and fair elections. But in practice, citizens also confer legitimacy to the governments based on the results that are produced by that government. That is to say, on outputs. Now, like most of you, I was brought up in the orthodoxy that input democracy through free and fair elections will in the long run outperform because citizens can always vote out a government that has not performed and in that way seek to improve outputs by changing the inputs. But we are learning the hard way that democratic elections and changes in government over decades have not consistently produced better outcomes for the citizens in many industrialized economies. Sure, there has been economic growth, but income and wealth inequality have increased with stagnating median incomes and growing societal tension. That is the reason for what is now widely observed to be the problem of a democratic deficit in some Western industrialized economies and the rise of populist leaders who have illiberal instincts but nevertheless command much support through democratic elections. Let me be clear. I much prefer the vagaries of democratic choice to the certainty of authoritarian rule. But we cannot be smug about our preference for input legitimacy as the only way to validate state power. And we cannot deny that the Chinese state 
has its own claim to a kind of legitimacy, even if we don't like it. No, that was not from Beijing's Great Hall of the People. That was from the floor of the Canadian Senate. Senator Yen Pao Wu, who says very kindly he prefers democratic choice to authoritarian rule, but we cannot be smug about our preference for input legitimacy because, well, of course, to him, Chinese Politburo policies tend to do very well for their citizens, even if the citizens don't really have a say in their government. You could not write this in a believable way that an official would so brazenly and blatantly shill for another country on the floor of their government and have it be believable. Yet this is what passes for Canadian lawmaking. Now, he is not just a, a sitting senator. He was appointed by who else? Justin Trudeau, who himself has actually lauded, in his words, China's basic dictatorship. He was appointed by Justin Trudeau, and he's actually the leader of his group of senators, the leader of, they call it the independent senators group. It's basically liberal appointed senators. He's their leader. And there has been virtually no criticism from his colleagues. Now, whether he is an agent of the Chinese regime or just a useful idiot, I don't know. There's a part of me that thinks if he were an agent of the regime directly, he would be a little bit more subtle. But it sounds like in Canada, you don't need to be. You can hit them over the head with the Chinese propaganda because he's already laid the groundwork that anyone who criticizes the Chinese regime is really just racist against Asians. So now anyone who criticizes him, well, it's all just racism. Problem solved. But this is very much a contender. I would say this is the grand prize winner for Chinese penetration. I even think he ranks slightly higher than Eric Swalwell and Fang Fang, although uh, perhaps the exchange rate, it's not as bad on the propaganda meter in Canada as it would have been in the United States. But congratulations, Senator Wu, on making the Chinese penetration segment two weeks in a row. I believe that is a new record, sir. Bravo. On the note of Canada, I guess I have to just lean into my identity. No point hiding from it. It's who I am. And as I said, it makes this show totally Canadian content compliant when the new regulations come down the pipeline in my country. But tomorrow, July 1st, is supposed to be Canada Day. Now, I've never called it that. I've always honored it as Dominion Day, which is the original and I would argue true name. Though this year I am finding myself a little bit more prone to embracing Canada Day because it is now a subversive act against the prevailing woke regime to celebrate Canada Day. Now this is something that I would imagine is completely unheard of with Australia Day or Independence Day or Bastille Day or any other national celebration. But Canada Day has become this year an act of self-loathing and self-flagellation, so much so that more than two dozen Canadian cities and towns across the country have this year basically abandoned their celebration of Canada Day because they believe they need to instead take a long, hard look in the mirror and focus on reconciliation with Indigenous peoples. Now, the backdrop for this is that a couple of weeks ago, there was an Indigenous community out in British Columbia that had used ground-penetrating radar and found dozens and dozens, hundreds, in fact, of unmarked graves of children believed to be at a residential school that was located nearby. Last week, another Indigenous community in Saskatchewan did the same thing. The residential schools program in Canada is a long, dark history that has been subjected to a great deal 
of analysis, but it is not new. And moreover, it is not justification to level against your country the charge that it is unworthy of celebration. And that's where we are now. It was actually the conservative leader. I mentioned Aaron O'Toole earlier. The conservative leader in Canada is basically the only party leader to so far get up and say, yes, he will be celebrating Canada Day. All of the other leaders are saying, well, you know, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't want to ban it, but, yeah, well, it's tough and, and we need to do better as a nation. And, and again, th this is absolutely unheard of. I find with a government that is imposing censorship legislation, it might be hard to, for me to come up with reasons to celebrate Canada at some points. But now that celebrating Canada, celebrating the country on its birthday, is an act of protest, something that has basically become politicized where you have to be anti-woke to now celebrate your country. I don't even know where that leaves us. So now, like I said, I was all on Team Dominion Day for the last several years, and now I'm on Team Happy Canada Day, scream it from the rooftops, wave like the 20-foot Canadian flag on my front lawn, all because I'm being told that I'm not supposed to do this. And, and I'm actually, which is a bad thing for a talk radio host, I'm actually speechless in some respects at how we let it get this far. And a big part of this was statues. Because Canada's not been immune from the tearing down of statues. For us, it's not uh, Confederate generals and the like. It's actually been our founding prime minister, Sir John A. Macdonald, who's been uh, basically defaced and vandalized and uh, deplatformed and had his name taken off of schools and buildings for months now. And whenever anyone like me said, well, hang on, you're erasing history, they said, no, 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 it's just the statue, we just don't want to honor and commemorate it, but we're not going after anything else. And it didn't take a genius to realize that they were never going to stop at statues. So now that in Canada, basically all of the statues of any note are gone, all of the names have been taken off the buildings, Dundas Street, one of the longest streets in the city of Toronto, is now up for being renamed, which will cost millions of dollars, will force businesses to change their names if the business named itself after the street it was on, but uh, some obscure figure in Canadian history has done some stuff and no longer can the street be named Dundas. So now that there's nothing left, you have to go after the country itself. And there is a visceral loathing of the country that activists are not just, and not just fringe activists, by the way, that activists who've had the ear of lawmakers and governments at the municipal, provincial, and federal level, that they've been able to advance this idea that Canada is the enemy and that Canada Day has to be about removing yourself as far as you can, putting as much distance as you can between society and the country. And once you've done that, you have nothing left. Just point to the country that you think does it better. I'll wait. In the meantime, I'm sorry to end on such a sour note because this is supposed to be a celebratory affair. Canada is a young country. It has a rich history, a lot in the way of cultural traditions. I love that we have cultural influences from both Great Britain and from the United States. It's a country I'm very proud of. And it's a country now in which celebration is an act of protest. So whether you are Canadian or not, I ask tomorrow that you celebrate with me. Happy Dominion Day, happy Canada Day, and God bless you all. It's been a pleasure.
Join us next time for another edition of The Mark Stein Show. The Mark Stein Show is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media. All rights reserved.